I've been preaching through the book of Philippians. Every time I'm up here, I go through the next passage in the same way that Scott um, goes through the book he's in, which is Ephesians. And so I was really challenged this last week by the passage for today. It made me frustrated with myself a little bit. This passage that we're going through today is about putting others before yourself. And naturally, I'm not good at that. It's about being humble and about doing nothing with selfish desires. And I've got to be honest, I feel like I'm often doing the complete opposite of that. I always beat myself up about, I feel like I read in scripture what I'm supposed to do. I read in God's word and I'm worshiping about what he's doing in my life. Yet when I walk it out, I'm not always the most obedient. I feel like honestly, I'm inherently arrogant. And oftentimes I feel like I'm super selfish. And so naturally as a response to that, I felt super convicted anytime those things come up. So I started listing off all the ways I had been selfish in the last week and and in the last month. And I started feeling really bad about myself and I started getting annoyed. And so I had to get my mind off of that. And so naturally I started thinking about uh, other people who are more selfish than me. Uh, I had to get my mind off of myself a little bit, but I felt super convicted and I was frustrated because they shouldn't be this way. These people that I'm thinking of that are super selfish, how dare they be so selfish? How dare they not think of me before themselves like a good Christian ought to? And so I was frustrated, but then I thought to myself, well, neither should I. Neither should I be that selfish, yet here I am finding myself. I reflected on how our society has always and is currently preaching this message that tells us that we matter more than the person next to us. And we buy into that. Now, I I don't want to speak for everybody, but I feel like a lot of us do that. I feel like, especially myself, we buy into this, yeah, well, I'm supposed to put myself first. I'm about my success. I've got to get my ducks in a row, and I've got to get my house in order and make sure that I succeed and press forward. I feel like, if anything, though, as a church, we should be leading the way in a mindset that screams others first. And if the world hasn't gotten that impression from us, It's not because they're blind or that they don't see it. If the world hasn't gotten this impression from me, Juan Carlos, that I'm selfless, it's not on them because they're blind. It's on me because I have not followed through yet. And so I read, this is the verse or the one of the main verses from today. And here's what it says, says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, excuse me, when I read that, it was a complete slap in the face because the truth is it's so clear. Reading that forces you. It forces you to think about what you are and what you are not in relation to God's kingdom. It forces you to acknowledge every moment that you regard yourself as more important than anybody else on this planet. I mean, think about how many times you put yourself first in a given day. We have, at least myself, have a plan and a process about how the day's going to go and how the day ought to be. And realistically, people get in the way of my plan and my process. And it's frustrating. Think about it from when you first wake up with your family and you're fighting over the bathroom, you're fighting over the kitchen. You want to be in the spot because you woke up and you deserve it. Then you're on your way to work. And certainly people who are driving don't know how to drive as well as you do. Why wouldn't they just get out of your way? I have places to be. And then when you get to work, your email inbox is filled with requests. Your inbox is filled with demands and it's super frustrating and you work tirelessly for eight to 15 hours, some of you, to get over all of that and put those out of your inbox and get them outgoing. 
then work ends and you're on your way back home and you're depleted of all your patience and you're, you're super frustrated at this point and yet the traffic persists because in Wisconsin people don't know how to drive except me. And so I'm super frustrated about that. And then you get back home with your family and it's the same thing, demands. There are demands and demands and interruptions to your day. It's your day. But we can either choose to put others first in those moments or not. We can choose to embody a true follower of Jesus Christ or not. And it might seem trivial, but Paul's going to tell us that it's very much so not trivial. So in today's passage, Paul is appealing to us both as individuals and as a church body to be completely a unified front, to choose putting the needs of others before our own for the sake of the gospel. And so before we do that, I would love if you would join me in prayer. Bow our heads, close our eyes. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace, God. I thank you that uh, we're able to come here on Sunday mornings and worship you, and thank you for all you're doing in our week and, and get to share that experience with people that come to Root River Church. And I pray, Lord, that as we go into the second chapter of Philippians today, that you would be honest with us and that we would be honest with ourselves, God, that we would allow our hearts to be molded by what you said and spoke through Paul. I pray that you get rid of any wall that I have put up, that you get rid of any selfish desires in me that hold me from getting closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll go through it, okay? Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is a fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So this passage, is four verses, has two parts, and I want to walk through both of them today. And the first one is basically Paul appealing to this Philippian church to be unified, to have unity, and then he explains what unity is. And then the second part, he describes how it's expressed. Okay, And so the first one is Paul's appeal for unity and its meaning, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it again. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So as you know, I'm going to continue to repeat these, but you'll notice that there are four if clauses there. Four if clauses. And I want us to read it right because there is no hesitation or doubt. Typically, if you're talking about ifs, there's some non-clarity there. I don't understand. It might not be sure. I don't know what it is. But here, there's no hesitation. There's no doubt. It's best read as the word since. So I'll reread it. Since Christ continues to encourage you. Since you've received Jesus' love and it has comforted you, since you have exposure to the Holy Spirit, since you benefit from Jesus' affection and sympathy for you, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. He's making assumptions because he knows they're true because it's personal experience. Paul is speaking to common ground between them. They're both believers. And, and for him, he's their spiritual father. And so there's this emotional appeal, this loving reminder. He's putting their hearts at attention square to Jesus Christ. 
He's putting their minds at ease and focused on the king of kings. He's shaping their minds around what they know to be true based on their experience themselves with Jesus Christ and what Paul has been able to accomplish in that Philippian church. Paul is so smart here. He's reminding them first and foremost who Jesus Christ is before he brings any correction. He's saying, you've experienced this. You know this is true. He's saying, you have seen the benefits of unity in a Christian community. You are already putting much of this into practice. So make my joy complete and do. Make my joy complete and take some action. Church, I want to be really clear about this, about God. God has already done these things in your life. He has already died on the cross for your sins. He has already established his plans for your life uh, as a believer on this earth. He has already loved you extravagantly. He has already plucked you out of the darkness. He has already empowered you with the Holy Spirit. And he has already clearly given you your task for this earth today and as long as you live here. He has already shown you the way. What are you doing with it? How are you responding to what he's doing right now? You don't need to wait for something. You don't need to uh, expect something. Those things are happening, have happened, and will continue to happen. So the only thing that's missing in the equation is, what are you doing with it? Are you unified with other believers here at Root River Church? Is there conflict? Is there envy? Is there strife? Is there frustration? These are the things Paul is talking to. Another question, are you unified with your family? I have, I have been in a family where we were not unified. And I know that God at the center of those things can accomplish his purposes. But I've got to do my part. I've got to respond to what Jesus Christ has already done in my life. Now, there's numerous ways to answer those two questions I just gave you. But Paul, in this passage, is focusing on one way this time around. Verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul uses this word and phrase for same mind 23 times in his letters. Ten of those are found in this book, Philippians. Now it's obviously important for Paul to communicate this to his church of the church of the Philippians. This is more than just intellect though, this same mind. It's not just like, hey, they should know math the same and they should know English the same and they should know Spanish and German the same. And it's not that. It's a general outlook that does more than make them smarter. It makes them change their attitude. It's something more that makes them move forward. It makes them progress with something. It's not personality or lifestyle, but this same mind is common values. The second verse includes a sort of completion to each of those if clauses that we found in verse 1. And so I'll read them with the finishing. Since Christ continues to encourage you, do the same. Since you've received Jesus' love and it has comforted you, do that to others. Since you have exposure to the Holy Spirit, abide in him. Since you benefit from Jesus's affection and sympathy for you, make this your intention for others. Paul's joy here is really simple. When he says, make my joy complete, it's simple. It's that the Philippian church would continue being a united front on all ends. That they would continue as a group of people, just like Root River Church, they would take same strides moving forward with the gospel, that they would have the same outlook about their surrounding communities to share the gospel, that they would have the same mindset facing the troubles of division that might find their way in their church, 
Paul is equipping them and warning them prior. Now, if you remember, Paul's relationship with this church was intimate. I talked about this in my last sermon. It was intimate. They loved him. They supported him. They sent him money when he was in prison. They cared for him. They really loved him. And so looking at Paul now, Paul is being gentle and tender. He's not harshly correcting them. He's not telling them they've done something wrong and they need to fix it. He's lovingly saying, hey, this could happen. And I love that. If you remember in chapter 1, Paul says he longed for them with the affection of Jesus Christ, that they might be sincere and blameless until the day Jesus Christ comes. This is what's so endearing to me when I think of Paul and how dynamic of a leader he was. He was so uh, romantic kind of with this. It's kind of as if he wants to make sure he does all he can, not just to see them remain faithful for their sake, but that he'd be able to present this mature, unified body of believers to his king. That his life's work would be like, Lord, look, look at what we did with the Philippians. I love you. And this is my whole life. In my heart, it touched me so much because it's so romantic that his mind is so pastoral and his, his mind is so tenderhearted towards this Philippian church. So my question for you is, do you have that same desire for Root River Church? Do you have that same desire in, that Paul had that's romantic for others in your community? Do you have that same desire for your unbelieving family members? Is your heart broken and you're yearning to bring a gift to God that is another one that belongs in his kingdom? This was Paul's heart. Do you see yourself having the same heart for your children? You're raising them to be followers of Jesus Christ. The next two I put here are co-workers, neighbors, and your enemies. I don't think I can find myself always to be in that mode, but I know Paul Paul was, and I'm working towards that. So these first two verses are Paul calling them to, to unity and explaining what that unity is. And this is what it looks like. Paul told us what, now he's going to tell us how. How do we be united? How do we be unified with people in the same community? How do I be unified with other believers? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now there's two sides of this, a negative and a positive side of his phrase. And Scott has talked about this in his sermons a number of times through the book of Ephesians. It's essentially Paul saying to not do this one thing, but instead do another thing. Okay. And so this first part of the phrase is the negative side. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That, that empty conceit or vain conceit or selfish ambition, that's the same verbiage that, that Paul uses when he's talking about um, those guys from the first chapter who are giving him a hard time while he's in prison, preaching the gospel out of envy and strife. And, and it's here in verse 15 through 17. Paul says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. This selfish ambition is something we will struggle with. We do struggle with, have struggled with. Christians will continue. The world will continue to struggle with selfish ambition. But that right there is what motivated them. These men, and this is what the ugly part is, these men 
were preaching the gospel to seek glory for themselves, not for the glory of God, not for the glory of uh, furthering the gospel like Paul was, not, not for any of those things. And sadly for these men, even though they were preaching the gospel and it's for the wrong reasons, they're never going to end with what they really want. They're never going to get glory. That fake glory that they're attempting at is fleeting. It's not valuable. It's not, it's not a long-term asset. When I read that, when I was doing my study, man, that, that punched me in the gut because we can be here on Sunday mornings and we can do the Christian thing and, and lose sight of being in love with Jesus Christ. And when I'm being a Christian to my coworkers and I'm being kind and loving and all those things that come with uh, who Jesus Christ is, if it's, if it's not genuine, like, it, and I'm on accident seeking glory for myself, what a shame. I was terrified. I just started praying, Lord, please let that never be me. Lord, please let me never seek that. Please never let me have this selfish ambition over something having to do with your word, your gospel. That's so ugly. But how many times is that us? How many times do we use our Christian values and benefits and the gifts he gives us to advance our own gospel? How many times do we use what God has given us to advance our own wealth and acquire accolades? How many times do we try to establish our own kingdom here on earth? What a shame. But this is our culture. Our culture preaches this. Establish your kingdom. Acquire wealth. Spend it wisely. Retirement. And now it's not just about money, but there's way more, way more than just money out there that we can be sold out to. And we have to be careful for that. The next phrase, empty conceit, vain conceit. One commentary I was reading through uh, explains that this is like an entitled attitude. And it's kind of silly. It's like that this person exists, but he has no reason to exist in that mindset. Pause. For instance, it's like I'm bad at baseball and I walk around baseball players talking a big game. It's me saying, I belong here. I sit on the, I'm on the team. I'm going to sit on the bench. I got my clothes on. I look, I look the part, but when I'm on the field, I have nothing. But I walk around like I'm the best player on the team. That's, that's this empty conceit. It's misplaced. It's not that this person has ground to stand on. He has no skill. He has no talent. There's no fact for him to claim. There's nothing there, yet his pride prevails. That's what we have to worry about in our life. So church, we need to eliminate the selfishness from our culture. We need to eliminate the selfishness in our children, in our own lives, and in our churches. We're at danger. We're at risk for this to take over. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets a desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And later in verse 24, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We are 100% at war, not with just the world, not, not just with Satan, but within ourselves. You have to die to yourself daily. You have to fight every urge that, that brings you to a place of selfish ambition and vain conceit. You need to fight that or it will consume you and you won't be able to see it any longer. We are at war and we, we are susceptible to this at Root River Church. If the Philippians were capable of failing there, we are. And we have to guard against that. Paul knew that selfishness 
could cause a lot of damage in a church body. So he warned them. I want us to hear that warning. Church, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Choose to walk by the Spirit in unity with everyone here at Root River Church. And none of us are perfect. And so we can say, yeah, we love, we love being here at church and we love every person, but we know, we know all of us are fallible and we know we can get on each other's nerves. But what's Paul saying? All of his letters are filled with be united, love one another, forgive one another. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Imagine how drastic your life would be, or differently, I should say, if you rid yourself of selfishness. Now, I only know me, right? In our own minds, we know the deepest, darkest secrets of us. So in my mind, I am the worst sinner because I know the most about me. I know how ugly I can be on the inside. And for each of you, only you and God know the ugliest you could ever be. So you are the worst sinner you know. Think of those experiences when you're selfish. Imagine if you rid yourself of them. How drastically different would your life be? Imagine what you could accomplish in the kingdom if you weren't offended easily, if you weren't always wanting for you, if you were always worried about others. You'd be popular. People would be ultra blessed by you. People would draw closer to God. Those are the things that matter most. So that's all the negative. Don't. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But instead, here's the positive. But instead, with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is counterculture, 100%. This is contrast. This would be weird if we were like this in today's church. People would feel so uncomfortably loved. People would be uncomfortable with the smile you give them. People would be uncomfortable with how genuine you are. They wouldn't know what to make of it at all. It wouldn't make sense. It would be drastically different. But at some point, because God is already at work through the Holy Spirit, it would catch fire. This humility that's in this passage, this is the correction of the previous two negative ones, right? Instead of being selfish and conceited, put others before you. Very simple. Now, what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, this word for humility had negative connotations. It actually, this word humility, was characterized by the value of slaves. This word humility characterized people as basic, lowly, common, and of no real value. So this word humility, this concept, wasn't something that would have been sought after prior to Jesus Christ. But when he got here, it became one of the most prized possessions. It became a solid virtue that Paul commands us, that Jesus commands us. It's ironic because... I love reading in the Old Testament. I love reading the book of Judges and, and all these stories of that, how God used people. It's ironic because the whole Old Testament is using lowly, common, humble people. Today, this hum- humility is, this is how I felt it would be. This humility is us walking into this world right now that regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation, economic class, culture, or political alignment, I would say to myself, I am no less or no more created in the image of God than another. That I would be no less or no more deserving of death because of the sinful nature inside me. That I would be no less or no more saved by the truth that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ than another. 
That would be humility today. This humility is you knowing who you are in comparison to Jesus Christ. This humility is you knowing who you are because of Jesus Christ. And we're on to verse 5 here. And in verse 5 through 11, Paul's awesome. In case we didn't catch his vibe, in case we didn't follow, in case we weren't on it, he was like, well, let me just summarize the perfect example of humility for you. Verses 5 through 11, pour out who Jesus Christ was for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus Christ, which is this, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we have any question about why we're supposed to be humble that drives us through to, to Christian communities that are unified, it's for this last verse, because at the end of the day, what's our goal? that God be glorified, that people would come to know him as their Lord and Savior. When I read that passage, that summary that Paul writes, there's a few things that stick out to me if I could reflect on them with you. The first one is, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. There's a message that Pastor Scott preached probably over a year ago, maybe even two years ago, about Judas. And in his message... He called Judas opportunistic, that he was just along for the ride. And that stuck with me because I got to imagine that in our churches, right, we demonize Judas, but a lot of us are just here for the ride. And of course, Jesus is not here to take advantage of the benefits of God because he is God and he is God's son, but I'm not. So I'm susceptible to being an opportunist. At the end of Judas's life, it was really clear why he was following Jesus. So my, my question to you is, you got a little Judas in you or no? That terrifies me because I'm sure there's glimpses of it. My encouragement to you is flee any thought that drives you to take advantage of God's gifts. Flee any thought that drives you to think that you've attained something on your own. Second thing, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus Christ sets the example. If we want to delete everything else, that line right there, he came to be a servant. If this is our example, begs the question, where are you serving? Who are you serving? Why are you serving? And you have to ask that question to yourself. You have to ask it. If you ignore it, I'm really sorry. You shouldn't, but you have to. You have to ask yourself, am I a servant? Who am I serving? Why am I serving? My advice to you is flee every thought that makes you feel deserving of service from others, yet you're not serving. Third, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And this concept of obedience, we're all going to struggle with forever, right? Jesus said this to his disciples as a command, and we ought to obey it. A new command I give you, love one another, because I have loved you, so you must love one another. And Paul is taking that essence of that love within the church and saying, if you love one another like that, not selfishly, but selflessly. 
things are going to go away that are bad. You're going to draw close to one another. You guys are going to be strong and you're going to be able to withstand when false teachers come through. You're going to be able to withstand, like he said in chapter one, when people try to cause division in the church, when, when the complainers come out just to sabotage because you're all on the same page, in the same mindset. Every thought that justifies you disobeying, love one another as I have loved you. Lastly, fourth one, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, our, our unity here at Root River is so important. Our Savior has laid out the best example. We have no excuse. Paul accomplished it. A fallible and infallible man have accomplished unity, have accomplished these commands. But the truth is that it's not just to benefit us, but it's that last verse, so that every and any tongue might acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let's bow our head and close our eyes. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you sent Paul, this man, this missionary, to drop some serious knowledge in our hearts and our lives. Forgive me, Lord, in those areas that I'm conceited. Forgive me, Lord, when I'm so selfish, when I put my needs before others. Forgive me, Lord, when I disobey your commands blatantly. Forgive me, Lord, that I allow your gospel to come out of your mouth and other things not of your gospel come out to. Forgive me, Lord, of ugly actions. Forgive me of an ugly heart. God, forgive us of these things that get in the way of a deep relationship with you. Lord, we're receiving this warning of imminent danger, God, this risk that our church could be at, God. Continue to mold our hearts. Continue to shape how we love one another. Continue to encourage us. Continue to bring us to a place of understanding. Lord, thank you for a pastor like Scott that will bring us the word no matter what. That he would love us enough to correct us, to give us truth even when it's painful. That if there's any envy or strife, Lord, that I know I can go to him and he'll speak to it, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, that you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, that we might be a part of what you're doing here on this earth. So, Lord, I pray as we leave today, that we would start to analyze our selfish desires, that we would start to analyze when we put ourselves before others from small petty things to conversations to relationships to conversations at work with friends and even at church, God. Help us to see this gospel message, this this urgency that Paul did and mimic it, that we would understand who you are and that you are who you say you are and that we take action. In Jesus' name we pray.